Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of miscarriage and harm against minors that may be upsetting for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Niagara Falls, New York, October 1974. Tim and Karen Schroeder are a young married couple who live in an auspiciously named neighborhood, Love Canal. The Schroeders own a small brick-and-wood dwelling that they've fixed up into their dream home. And that includes their most prized addition, a new in-ground swimming pool in the backyard. It's everything the Schroeders have ever wanted. Or so they thought. One day, Karen looked outside the home's back window, and she couldn't believe what she saw. Their precious pool had suddenly lifted itself out of the dirt and risen two feet above the ground. Karen immediately called Tim to discuss it. She thought maybe heavy rains and excess groundwater caused the pool to rise. A simple and plausible explanation, but one that was far from the truth. Karen and Tim had no idea about the toxic poisons lying right underneath their pool and the entire neighborhood. Hi, I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And this is They Knew, a four-part special series presented by Conspiracy Theories. When a tragedy occurs, we often find ourselves asking, how could this happen? Oftentimes, the events were totally random. There's no way anyone could have foreseen what would happen. But other disasters are the result of negligence and corruption. In the next four episodes, we'll look at four instances where corporations and government officials knew their actions could harm the public. And yet, they still carried on like nothing was wrong. Unlike our usual Conspiracy Theories episodes, nothing here is speculation. These stories are all factually true accounts of institutional negligence. In this episode, we'll take a deep dive into the site of one of America's first toxic catastrophes, the Love Canal neighborhood in Niagara Falls, New York. The city turned a former chemical waste landfill into a suburban community in the 1950s. They knew the substances buried under the suburb were dangerous, but they let families live there for decades, even as it caused them serious health problems. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The American dream has meant many different things to people. For many families, it represented a picture-perfect suburban life, settling down in a quiet neighborhood, buying a nice house with a white picket fence, and sending their kids to good schools. That's the dream the Love Canal was built on. In the late 1800s, the Niagara Falls area in western New York was mostly industrial. The nearby waterfalls were a source of hydroelectric power for paper factories and sawmills. But around 1892, an entrepreneur named William T. Love visited the area. Instead of fueling factories, he envisioned using the natural power source to create a suburban utopia. Immediately, the businessman drew up plans for what he called, quote, the most perfect city in existence. 
He'd build a seven-mile canal to provide hydroelectric power from the waterfalls. He hoped to fill the neighborhood with good schools, efficient factories, and clean streets. Naturally, everyone would want to move into this brand new perfect city. Selling homes would be easy as pie. But in order to make those profits, Love needed funding to get the project off the ground. He roped in nearly 100 investors and made big promises, even as an economic depression set in. With that funding, Love's dream began construction two years later in May of 1894. The Seven Mile Waterway became known as the Love Canal. But the process went slower than Love expected. As the economic depression worsened, many of his backers pulled out. By August of 1896, Love ran out of money and he skipped town months later. Work ceased on the Love Canal, leaving an empty 3,200-foot ditch. Over the next decade, the bank foreclosed on the land. All that was left of Love's dream city was a big hole in the ground. In the early 1900s, the abandoned Love Canal site was filled with groundwater. Local children turned it into a swimming hole in the summer and a makeshift ice skating rink in the winter. It was far from the suburban utopia Love wanted, but for two decades, local families enjoyed the spot. But around 1920, the city of Niagara Falls purchased the Love Canal's land at a public auction. City officials noticed that no one lived around the 16-acre plot, and the terrain consisted of impermeable clay. They thought those conditions made the Love Canal perfect for a landfill. Back then, landfills were already a common way to dispose of waste. Cities didn't know what we do now about how dumping can destroy the land and people's health. It's unclear what the city buried in the area, but the trash was supposedly harmless, according to a report from the Buffalo News. Without much thought, Niagara Falls regularly discarded their garbage in the Love Canal for 20 years. But in the 1940s, the type of trash escalated into more dangerous territory. In 1942, the landfill caught the attention of a local business, Hooker Electrochemical Company. The factory manufactured ingredients for several products, including plastics, bleaches, and pesticides. Hooker wanted to discard its chemical waste in the Love Canal for several reasons. First, the land was already soiled by other trash and located in a remote area. Dumping chemicals there seemed to have little potential to harm people. Second, there was already a large hole in the ground, so they didn't need to do any further digging. And last but not least, the Love Canal was only four miles away from the Hooker plant. To Hooker, the canal was the perfect spot to use for dumping. The city of Niagara Falls agreed to give them a permit, likely earning a profit from the fee. It's not clear if officials were fully aware that Hooker's debris could be dangerous. The term chemical waste doesn't exactly sound completely safe, but back then, there were no laws to regulate or define hazardous waste, so disposing of chemicals in the ground was completely legal. Not to mention, the company claimed to take state-of-the-art precautions. To prevent chemical leaks, Hooker drained the Love Canal's water and deepened the 10-foot hole to 25 feet. 
Then, they lined the ditch with even more impenetrable clay. The waste was collected in 55-gallon metal drums and other containers before being tossed into the hole. The company thought these safety measures would be more than enough to keep the chemicals from escaping into the soil and water. Before long, Hooker became the Love Canal's primary trash source. As a result, by 1948, the company bought the land outright from Niagara Falls. In total, Hooker dumped over 21,000 tons of chemicals into the Love Canal. The company may not have known the extent of the chemicals' toxicity. However, it probably had some idea, according to Richard S. Newman's book, Love Canal. For instance, some factory workers had a very noticeable yellow skin tone from working with picric acid, a chemical used to make explosives and dyes. It was certainly a hard side effect to overlook, but still, the company did. At the time, Hooker and many health officials were more concerned with making a profit than anyone's health. The company didn't even acknowledge a possible problem with what they were doing until the 1950s. As the post-World War II baby boom reached upstate New York, many new families searched for their suburban American dream and found it in Niagara Falls. The city's population quickly grew from 78,000 to over 100,000. The once secluded area was suddenly filled with new developments that inched closer and closer to the Love Canal dumping site. By 1952, the Niagara Falls Board of Education needed to build a new school, and the only place left for it was the Love Canal. Coming up, Niagara Falls officials make a dangerous deal. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In the 1950s, Niagara Falls saw rapid population growth. The city soon needed to build a new elementary school, and the only affordable, undeveloped spot left was the Love Canal. But the area itself was dangerous. The Hooker Electrochemical Company had been filling the 16-acre plot with toxic waste for over a decade. Even so, the Niagara Falls Board of Education began talks with Hooker to purchase the land back. School officials were desperate. The city was planning a new neighborhood in the area, and building a school there would make it even more attractive to young families. In turn, that would make even more money for the city. So the board would stop at nothing to get that property back. If Hooker didn't willingly agree to sell the land, the city planned to take it back another way, through eminent domain. 
Eminent domain powers allow the government to seize private property for public use. Of course, it can only be done if the land's owner is compensated for the loss, but still, Hooker was hesitant to sell. The company's executive vice president, Bjarna Claussen, showed concern for the sale in internal memos. In March of 1952, Claussen worried that the discovery of the toxins in the canal could hurt the company one day. He thought that Hooker should stop dumping in the Love Canal and refuse to sell it. But a month later, he mysteriously changed his mind. By April 25, 1952, Claussen had spoken with school officials. It's unclear what exactly happened at that meeting, but they persuaded Claussen to sell the Love Canal to the Board of Education, as long as they agreed to one stipulation. Claussen wrote, quote, we became convinced that it would be a wise move to turn this property over to the schools, provided we could not be held responsible for future claims or damages resulting from underground storage of chemicals. The school board agreed. A year later, Hooker sold the land to the Niagara Board of Education for $1. In the deed, Hooker inserted a clause to absolve itself from any liability. The company sealed the Love Canal ditch with a thick clay layer and seemingly washed its hands of any responsibility for what might happen next. The $1 sale price and the liability clause are a pair of undeniable red flags. The Niagara Falls Board of Education knowingly purchased dangerous terrain for an elementary school. Once the transfer was complete, construction started on part of the former dump site. But workers quickly realized that something was terribly wrong. While digging, they smelled fumes and found suspicious holes. Then, the school's concrete foundation sank into the ground. It was a bad sign, but it didn't discourage the Niagara Board of Education from using the site. Instead, officials instructed the workers to move the school 85 feet away. There, the workers continued building without further incident. As we mentioned earlier, the original Love Canal landfill was 3,200 feet long. So even though they moved 85 feet away, the school was still being built on top of the toxic dump. In 1955, construction was finished and the 99th Street School opened its doors. After its successful launch, the city followed through with their plans to build a new neighborhood on the Love Canal. Niagara Falls sold some of the land to developers to build homes. It was a controversial decision considering the area's history. City officials debated if it was safe to build houses on the former landfill. They even consulted Hooker's lawyer, who warned them that people could get sick from the chemicals in the ground. But still, the city of Niagara Falls went through with the sale in 1957. Before long, developers had constructed around 900 homes in the area. The new residents weren't informed that their backyard sat on a toxic waste dump. The neighborhood retained the Love Canal name, and it actually began to resemble William T. Love's vision for a suburban utopia. Nobody saw any immediate effects from living on top of the landfill, but over the years, the neighborhood developed some strange quirks. The area's trees and shrubs constantly died. 
When kids threw the dirt in their yards, it exploded due to the high phosphorus content, and the air had a dreadful chemical stench. In 1959, residents Aileen and Edwin Voorhees noticed the weirdest oddity of all in their house. Odious black sludge oozed through their basement cinder block walls. Aileen and Edwin tried to stop it with sealants and even installed gutters to no avail. Understandably, the situation frustrated the couple. One day, Edwin had had enough, and that's when he punched a hole in the basement wall. More black slime dripped from the hole. Upon closer inspection, Edwin realized the basement's entire cinder block wall was filled with the goo. The Voorheeses knew the industrial chemicals in the Love Canal probably had something to do with it, but they didn't think the foul-smelling gunk was particularly dangerous. They probably weren't aware that it was something called leachate, contaminated water that flows through landfills and into other spaces. Aileen and Edwin considered it to be another Love Canal quirk, like the air's chemical smell and the dead trees. They didn't know it was life-threatening. After all, if it was dangerous, wouldn't the city warn them about it? So the couple remained in the house and raised their children there without a worry. Years later, their daughter Karen married a contractor named Tim Schroeder, and they bought their own home nearby in the Love Canal. Karen and Tim saved every penny they earned so they could turn it into their dream home. Eventually, they installed the pièce de résistance, a swimming pool in the backyard. Even when the entire pool mysteriously rose from the ground years later, they didn't think it was anything serious. Just a minor annoyance, like the chemical sludge at Karen's parents' house. And after all, Karen and Tim worked so hard on making the house a dream home. They didn't want to abandon it just because of one weird occurrence. So the Schroeders stayed and raised their two children there. On November 21st, 1968, Karen gave birth to their third child, and doctors were immediately concerned. Baby Sherry was born with a cleft palate, partial deafness, and a hole in her heart. As she grew older, she had a learning disability, an enlarged liver, and two rows of bottom teeth in her mouth. Unfortunately, Sherry wasn't the only Love Canal child with serious ailments. Many babies were born with congenital disorders. Other kids developed rashes, inexplicable allergies, and chemical burns from the contaminated ground. But children weren't the only ones affected. Throughout the 1960s and 1970s, adult residents experienced an uptick in asthma, miscarriages, and cancer. At the time, no one quantified just how many people experienced these side effects. Lots of citizens complained to state and local officials, but no one looked into the link between the land's chemicals and the health issues. That is, until local reporters published a bombshell report. In the fall of 1976, the Niagara Gazette revealed that New York officials had tested the Love Canal playing fields, which were located on top of the old dump site, and the examination found numerous toxic chemical compounds. The Niagara County Health Department and the Environmental Protection Agency continued examining the region. 
By March of 1978, the state discovered that the chemicals weren't just in the soil. They had contaminated the air and water, too. State and local authorities panicked. Their worst fears had come true. They considered options like removing the chemicals or an evacuation. But there was no easy solution, and a whole neighborhood's lives hung in the balance. The Love Canal residents wondered what this meant for their homes and the community they'd built. They deserved to know what was going on in their own backyards. And one woman in particular led the neighborhood in fighting back. Up next, the Love Canal residents demand answers. Now, back to our story. In the spring of 1978, federal and state officials contemplated how to fix the Love Canal's contamination problem. In the meantime, the neighborhood's residents were left to sweat it out. Before long, one particular resident grew tired of waiting, Lois Marie Gibbs. In her book, Love Canal, My Story, she recalled how her young son Michael had enrolled in kindergarten at the 99th Street School. Within a few months, he had seizures and low white blood cell counts. This puzzled Gibbs. Neither she nor her husband had a family history of either problem. Then, in June of 1978, Gibbs read reporter Michael Brown's articles in the Niagara Gazette, which listed the chemicals found on the site and the health effects of exposure. And that's when Gibbs realized her son had those exact symptoms. She requested to transfer her son to another public school due to the building's contamination. But school officials rejected the request. The superintendent insisted that the area was safe. To Gibbs, this was an unacceptable response. She couldn't afford to send her son to private school, but she also believed she had a right to send her kids to a school that wasn't poisonous. So she took matters into her own hands. Gibbs thought that if the school authorities wouldn't listen to her alone, perhaps they'd listen to a group of parents. Other families had complained about the chemical effects on their kids, and Gibbs decided to rally them. First, she approached the school's other parents with a petition. She told them about the chemicals buried under the school and how her son reacted to them. Many of the parents were shocked. They had no idea about the Love Canal's history and quickly agreed to sign on. This encouraged Gibbs to go door-to-door to gather support. Some people refused to sign, accusing her of starting the petition to get publicity. Others told her to, quote, stay home and behave yourself. But many citizens wanted to share how the chemicals affected their own lives. Soon, she gathered over 100 signatures. As she visited house after house, Gibbs realized that practically every family had an illness that could have been caused by the chemicals. Among them were heart attacks, miscarriages, kidney issues, congenital disorders, and sudden infant death syndrome. While Gibbs was collecting signatures, New York authorities continued testing the Love Canal with horrifying results. By July of 1978, a study on the dump site found around 81 chemicals, including benzene. According to the CDC, long-term exposure to benzene can cause leukemia. Those analyses ultimately pushed officials to admit the truth. The 99th Street School was toxic and needed to close. 
A month later, on August 2, 1978, Dr. Robert Whalen, the New York State Health Commissioner, announced the news at the school itself. Dr. Whalen also said that pregnant women and children under two years old should vacate their homes around the building. This announcement enraged the Love Canal residents. The crowd erupted with questions. Did this mean it was safe for children over two or anyone else? Unfortunately, they didn't get an answer. Dr. Whalen took a break from the meeting and never returned, further angering the locals. They knew that if the Love Canal was crawling with poisonous chemicals, everyone needed to leave for their safety. Some residents left their homes and stayed with family elsewhere, but not everyone had that luxury. For many people, their Love Canal home was all they had. And even that had become tainted, not just by the toxins, but government inaction. Residents started displaying pointed and sarcastic protest signs in their front yards, hoping officials would notice. One of them read, quote, If it can kill me, it can kill you. Neighborhood meetings also turned more irate. A resident named Tom Heisner led a protest where he collected his neighbor's mortgages and tax bills in a bucket and lit them on fire. Tom declared, We're not paying anything. It's uninhabitable. We can't live here. This inflammatory protest made Gibbs anxious. She feared that the tensions might eventually turn neighbors against each other instead of against their common enemy. So she and her neighbors fueled their frustration into founding the Love Canal Homeowners Association, or LCHA. They knew they'd get further voicing their anger as a united front, with Gibbs as the organization's president. Especially as the Love Canal went from being a local crisis to a national one. A few days after the LCHA was founded, on August 7, 1978, President Jimmy Carter declared a state of emergency in the Love Canal. Coincidentally, on the day of the announcement, New York Governor Hugh Carey visited the neighborhood for a re-election campaign event. The LCHA stormed the event, calling the governor a murderer who was killing the children. They had one main demand. They wanted the state to buy back their homes so they could leave the Love Canal. Governor Carey quickly gave in to the pressure, likely wanting to save face with voters. On behalf of New York State, he offered to buy back the 239 closest homes to the school. It was a victory for some, but there were still over 650 families left in the area, and they wanted out too. But authorities insisted that not everyone needed to leave. In fact, they were going to spend millions of dollars to salvage the area. In October of 1978, the state started to build a chemical drainage system to supposedly clear the Love Canal of the chemicals. Unearthing toxic substances was a big risk. So, while they still refused to help all families leave permanently, New York State spent $500,000 on 75 buses to temporarily evacuate residents in the event of an explosion. According to The Atlantic, officials thought it would be safe to return once the construction was complete. But they were very wrong. As workers dug, they tested the soil and they received far more devastating results than anyone expected. 
The soil contained 2,4,5-trichlorophenol, a chemical related to dioxin, one of the deadliest man-made chemicals in existence. Authorities knew just how dangerous this substance was. According to the EPA, dioxins can cause cancer, immune system damage, and hormonal issues. Later, Hooker admitted to dumping about 200 tons of the poisonous substance. It's unclear if they knew how toxic it was at the time of dumping, but it was known as an extremely powerful fungicide and bacteria killer. Regardless, the company refused any liability or damages. After these findings, the LCHA intensified its protests. Throughout 1979, the organization picketed the Love Canal construction site, Niagara Falls City Hall, and Governor Kerry's office. Gibbs met with congressmen and other officials in Washington, D.C. Spurred by the protests and Gibbs' input, Governor Kerry bought back more Love Canal homes, allowing the residents to evacuate. Gradually, the rest of the nearly 700 families emptied out of the neighborhood. In total, the relocation of all the families cost New York State $17 million. And the exodus was just in time, too. The New York State Health Department found dioxin in several surrounding areas. This meant the cleanup for the contaminated mess was going to be long and complex. In 1980, the Love Canal situation helped influence President Carter to sign a new law, the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act. Known as the Superfund Program, the legislation kept companies like Hooker Electrochemical liable for their dumping. However, since the responsible parties were sometimes hard to pin down, the program included public funding to help clean up damaged sites, meaning taxpayers footed the bill. Thanks to the Superfund law, a federal district court found Hooker liable, despite the deed's exculpatory clause. This result set a helpful precedent for subsequent lawsuits against the company. Eventually, Hooker, which was now called Occidental Chemical, settled the cases out of court. The company paid $129 million to the federal government and $98 million to New York State. The money helped pay for the cleanup as well as compensate the affected families. But for the Love Canal homeowners, it was too little, too late. Their lives had already been upended by one of the worst environmental disasters the U.S. had ever seen. Many would have health issues for years to come. All they could hope was that officials would learn from their mistakes in the future. At first, it seemed like authorities heeded the lesson. The federal government spent years removing chemicals and demolishing the buildings in the Love Canal. The 99th Street School was destroyed, along with hundreds of homes. But 260 homes in the northern part of the area remained, since officials thought they were far enough away from the affected zone. And because they thought it was safe, they wanted to use the land to make money again, even after everything that happened. In the 1990s, New York State's Love Canal Area Revitalization Agency renovated the remaining homes to be resold. Since the Love Canal name had been tarnished, they rebranded the neighborhood with a new but ominous name, Black Creek Village. The houses were sold at 20% below market value, which enticed families to move in and make a life there, just like before. But this time, 
the once polluted land had been flushed of its dangerous chemicals, at least allegedly. On March 17, 2004, federal officials declared the Love Canal safe. The EPA removed the site from the program and called it a vibrant area that's been revitalized. In total, the cleanup took 21 years and around $400 million. But a decade later, Black Creek Village residents claimed they were experiencing symptoms of chemical poisoning. From 2014 to 2020, hundreds of residents filed 20 lawsuits claiming that the land is still toxic, even though the EPA claimed the region was safe. As of this recording, 19 of those cases are still ongoing. It's an unfortunate development that proves a major point. Just because a catastrophe happened a long time ago doesn't mean it's over. The government and many companies still are, knowingly and unknowingly, negligent all the time. Money always seems to prevail over safety, even if the cost of cleanup exceeds the price for doing things the right way in the first place. In fact, the rest of the stories we'll look at in this special occurred within the past 10 years. And our next one especially dominated recent headlines, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time for the second episode in our They Knew special on the Flint water crisis. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Ben Hanani and Kate Gallagher. Fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Brian Petrus. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.